Hello and welcome. You're listening to Karen Modokaitis on How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right, you all, Laura Boyd is back and we're going to talk about the other side of the great resignation, really the catalyst for it, which is the great awakening. I'll circle back with you all once I'm done with my conversation with Laura. Hello, Laura Boyd. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Corinne? I'm doing well. It's dark here. <laughs> yeah, it's early for you, for sure. We actually have light. We have light. But here we are. No technical problems. Yay us. Yeah. And I think I started at 20 till the hour just to make sure and did all my checks. <laughs> I'm getting so good at this now. See, it's all a learning process. I gave myself compassion, kind of. I uh, fixed things, and then I just keep adjusting. And then we found a problem to like try to go and solve, and yes. our stress levels were rising. And I'm like, how about we do this after the podcast? <laughs> right. We did find new things to start stressing ourselves out about technologically. Yeah, that's Ooh, so good. Isn't that because you like to use stress to motivate you? <laughs> yes. But then I also learned that maybe that's just a – reoccurring pattern and a habit that that's what I'm used to. So I need to be aware of it so I can break it. There right? we go. And we did that. <laughs> we did make me aware. Okay. Breaking it was a different story or will be a different story. <laughs> well, at least we caught it and re- we didn't fix the problem. We'll do that later. And which had nothing to do with the podcast, the audio parts of the podcast. But I started to notice like, okay, we were trying to figure something out with technology. I'm like, wait, this is not a problem we need to solve right now. <laughs> It's just heightening our stress before we go into this. So we're going to manage our energy and come into the space with better energy. Yes. Yes. So for all of the listeners, you're actually in a good spot. We are we are no, not stressed. It's the beginning of the day. No fires. Literally. Well, <laughs> I do live in California. The state is burning. Yeah, it is. I think Canada and the top of Minnesota have actually kind of got it under under wraps a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's scary. It's, it is very interesting times. So I want to clarify something because I, I, when I work with my clients, we know this is when we're laughing, we're not laughing at ourselves. We're laughing with ourselves. We're always with ourselves and humor can be a great way through it. And as Laura has said on a previous podcast, humor can be her armor, right? So one of the things that I often talk about is what's underneath it. So what does it look like on the outside, but what's really underneath it? So when I'm laughing, there's love and kindness and compassion of, oh, look at us. Here's what we know. Here's what we're doing. So we're so silly, right? Which was way more compassionate than you guys are just idiots. Here you are doing it this way again, right? Which is the old voice I used to have in my head. So I'm yes. not laughing at Laura or at myself. <laughs> no, that's actually interesting, Corinne, because I have really become more aware of this and and watched it because I work with so many clients and we talk about intent. Mm -hmm. And so I think about when somebody's laughing with me, I have trust in you that you wouldn't laugh at me directly. And so 
there are people probably that would laugh at me directly, but I choose not to hang out with them. Mm. I think that's interesting. I've, the more that I work with my clients in the intent versus action, mm-hmm. it, it just resonates with me. And it's just been over the last few months, we've been talking more and more about communication styles and that kind of thing. So anyway, it's just, it's interesting you brought that up. We hadn't even talked about that earlier, but intent versus action and and who's in your arena or who would you trust beside yourself and bringing your strong partners in. So when you're laughing, you're laughing together. Mm-hmm. And yes. I know the intent. Mm-hmm. It's good and positive. Well, and this, so you and I go back, you know, quite a bit of time. And so there's been a lot of trust that's been built up. Right. And so I can do this with you. And and there was another client this week and we were laughing a lot at our lives, right? Like laughing with ourselves at the gap between what we want and what's happening. And it really had to do with our kids, right? The teenagers and the counters and stuff. But with a new client where trust hasn't been built, you know, and they may be very concerned about how I may be perceiving them because we are so trained in that. I wouldn't do that because that could be a sh- total shame trigger, right? So there is that next level of authenticity and connection where it's like trust has been built for so much over time that there's comfort in that. I agree with that. And I even do that in my group development sessions. I can find the people that I have built connections with pretty quickly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of jovially use them as examples And, you know, and I always go up and touch them now that I can touch them, you know, on the shoulder or something. And so it's just that connectivity and that trust that you're building Mm -hmm. that they would know the intent behind it. Mm -hmm. And we're all really hungry, probably even more so for connection. Yeah, for sure. We're hardwired for connection and belonging. And I think that's probably the big thing out of the last 17 months, I think, is we want more connection. Mm -hmm. Or additional connection because some of us have been with our families for quite a bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> we want new, new, fresh, new connections. Like I, I love my husband and he's amazing. And and one of the things that I love about him is he's super funny. So, and he tells the stories, but wow, over the last 18 months, I've heard the same stories. <laughs> And he has a new audience, you know, when we're, so he can tell the same story to a new audience. I'm like, Oh, somebody poke a needle in my eye. But I still laugh at him because I love him and I, you know, he is funny. So, yeah. But yes, new connections would be nice too. Yes, absolutely. So have you been watching the Olympics? A little bit, not a lot. Why'd you have that little grimace? Because I feel guilty. (laughs) I love that you bring that up because... It was lovely. My family was gone. They were at a swim meet. So we started the Olympics together and then they left and I had the house to myself, which was a beautiful thing. And I got to watch the Olympics the way I wanted to. <laughs> it was beautiful. And I, I guess, taped it, tv it, I don't know, whatever it was, DVR'd it. And I wound up just giving myself permission to not watch the prelims. And I, well, I just watched swimming, the finals. And I watched a little bit of gymnastics, but I only watched a little bit. And it was so funny because my voice was saying, you should watch it all, right? Who, why are you fast forwarding? I just would notice this voice in my head. I'm like, but I get to do what I want to do, right? Like I'm the leader of my life. It impacts nobody. And so what do I want? And so there were only a couple of gymnastics routines or something I just watched. And I wasn't really interested in the storyline. And I watched the swimming. And then Laura, swimming is done. 
And I'm like, I'm done with the Olympics. I've <laughs> not had any interest. And it's so interesting because as I see some of the stuff in social media, I'm like, I don't even know who these people are. That's kind of cool. I said, oh, this is an interesting perspective of how the world may feel about swimming when they see somebody. Oh, sure. They're not attached where I am so attached to those storylines, right? So it's been interesting. Yeah, I totally gave myself permission to not watch anymore. I'm kind of like relieved because I think the Olympics are coming to an end soon. And I'm like, oh, thank God that'll be over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I haven't watched it because, well, we're so busy still with all of our family things. I don't know what's going on, but we're super busy. But there are so many good shows out there that my husband and I are watching together. And so we've got like a quick half hour and we're like, well, let's watch this. And so that's why. What's the shows you guys are watching? Schmigadoon. It's funny. I can't even describe it because it's just kind of funny. And of course, Ted Lasso. Everybody has uh. to watch Ted Lasso. It's such a good uplifter. <laughs> we kind of went back into some of the old ones. Friday Night Lights. I mean, mm. 2003 called or 2006 called and said they wanted their show back. So we're watching some of the old ones like that too. So, yeah. What two thousand three called? No, I'm just saying. Oh. <laughs> I'm just saying it's old, and Is we're it going that old. Finally, it's two thousand six, I think. Oh, jeez. I know that's such a good show. Did you ever read the book? No. It's a really good book. I think it won a Pulitzer Prize. It did based on a true story. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it won some sort of prize. Don't quote me on that, but. Well, there's a new series out called All American, so I don't know if it's similar to that. So I was going to check that out, too, just because I think those kinds of shows are so interesting to me. Different culture, different learning, but yet there's a little bit of athletic team sport competition, that kind of thing. So, yeah, Friday Night Lights is based on a true story in Odessa, Texas. I knew it was based on a true story, but I guess I didn't know there was a book out there. So the book is, I don't think the television, this television shows off the book. And then I think they created their own storylines. What happens to Jason Streep is different than what happens in, in real life in the book. Okay. So, and then, so there was a book, then there became a movie, which was so funny. We were so excited to go see it because I read the book probably in the early nineties. I'm so excited to go see the movie who where Connie Britton's in the movie. And we were very disappointed. <laughs> Oh, shoot. Then the series came out. Love the series. And then after the series is done, we're like, well, let's watch the movie. And then we actually love the movie. (laughs) Oh, perfect. It's good when something like that happens and you didn't expect it. Well, and I think there'd been enough space between the book and the movie. And then we had the show and we were longing to fill up that space. So it was a different way of filling it. But yeah, that's a great show. That's a great show. So that's good. All right. So here we are to talk about The Great Awakening. Yes. The Great Awakening. I actually, I told you before we started that from our Great Resignation podcast, we kind of touched on Great Awakening. And it's been interesting because I'm getting feedback from some of our listeners saying, wow, the Great Awakening is really resonating with me. And so they're thinking about what does that look like for them? And that's what I brought up to you. And then we started talking and we said, wait, we got to stop. This is this got to be part of our podcast for our listeners. So it's actually resonating, I think, with a lot of people today. I believe if you look back at what Great Awakening is, it is a religious term that was used, right? And it talks about the catastrophic, well, at the time it was about war, right? And that is 
how the catastrophic part of war then brought people closer to religion specifically and how then they had to think through what is it? What's my calling? What's from this religious perspective? What did God put me on this earth to do? And that to me is, that is the great awakening. And I think people have it and there might be a personal catastrophic event, but we're all in this worldwide pandemic that's causing us to have this catastrophic event that's then causing us to take a step back and say, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Am I just here to live and then die? What does that look like? So I think that's where the Great Awakening came from, and that I think that's why there's that term. I think people see it however you know it works for them, but it technically was a religious term. It's interesting. So when you were saying this, I was thinking of there's a hospice doctor at UC San Francisco, and he talks about death, and he gave me this perspective of death of death is a great thing because it gives us a deadline. If we didn't have death, we would just, oh, I can do that later. Oh, I can do that later. And, you know, while I think the Great Awakening gave us perspective of why am I keep waiting for later, right? When when something's so far out, what what do I want to do right now? And people really started to either I think so, I think again it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What's underneath the decision? Is it fear and anger? And then they're just fleeing and thinking it's gonna be better over here. Or are they really in this loving, compassionate place and making a decision that's based out of love, right? Love for themselves, love for others, and it's getting clarity for themselves. And now it's time to turn right in their life. And I think that's really important as people make these decisions is where are you rooted in shame and fear or in love and compassion? Yes. And I actually, I think we talked about this too, but I see that there are four really strong paradigms that we kind of see the world through fear, shame. Mm -hmm. The second is that duty. Like I'm doing it status quo. I'm doing it just to stay status quo with everybody else. And then there's that achievement. Am I Mm -hmm. doing it because I want to get to the next level and make more money and have a bigger title and bigger house and fancier car? Is it that achievement? And it's interesting because I, I share a lot with my clients that I lived most of my life in that, in that paradigm. And now I've shifted more to the fourth one, which is the integrity paradigm. And to me, that's one where you take a look at your life and your purpose and what gifts you have that you can give back to the world. And what does that look like? And I think it's interesting because we talked about imposter syndrome last time, but I think living in that achievement paradigm came a lot from the imposter syndrome. The basis of that was constantly trying to one up something on myself because I didn't want people to figure out I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to look like a fraud. So I just think it's interesting how it's all interconnected. And then six years ago, taking a step back and figuring out what is it that I really have a gift to bring to the world? That seems very big. But (laughs) what gift can I bring to others? I feel pretty strongly that most days I'm living in that integrity paradigm. And so for me, six years ago, I would say was my great awakening. And I had a personal catastrophic event, right? And then I'm prob- I would say three years after that, I had another one, and that led to depression. Again, not diagnosed, but more just the feeling of it, anxiety mm-hmm. and depression. So I continuously work on myself to stay in that integrity paradigm. 
one is that when we can acknowledge how we, I want to just circle back to something you said of like not diagnosed depression, but depression. Like there is, you know, for us to tune in and and check in with ourselves and say, what am I feeling? You know, what am I experiencing? And really listening to ourselves. And there may be a come a point, especially with depression, when it gets really pivotal that we do need outside help. Right. And so I'm just saying that listen in and then ask ourselves, what do I need and what does support look like? Because there's a range, like everything that we talk about on the show, there's always a continuum, right? It's, I go back to with Carol Dweck, you know, 12 years ago saying, Corinne, it's a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. It's a continuum Mm -hmm. and nobody's all one or the other. And when we're talking about depression, it's a continuum and really being able to check in and realizing when you need to ask for help and what the help may need to be right? That's the same thing with health. There's preventative health, you know, there's health that maybe you need something that can go to a clinic. And then there's other stuff where it can be more serious where you need to have surgery. There's always this range. And so knowing who is on your team and who you can reach out for support. Right. It actually goes back to the beginning of our conversation today about trust. Mm -hmm. Because if, if when you're going through something that's difficult like that, and including the great awakening, if you're looking at yourself saying, okay, what is it that I can give back to the world? Who do you trust to have that conversation with? Mm -hmm. So even if you're feeling down and you have depression, who do you trust that you can have a conversation who's going to give you good feedback? It might not be the feedback you want to hear, but you trust it's coming from a good spot. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the beginning of our conversation in the, in that regard. So I think for me, the the great awakening, it was so helpful to have the right people moving me during that season of my life. So if I were a listener, I'm always thinking about the listener. If I were a listener on the outside, and because I struggle with belonging, right? That's always my shame trigger. And I heard that and I'm like, well, that's great. Laura's just this popular person. She's on this podcast, <laughs> right? And she has the right people. And I'm sitting here all by myself. And I don't, right? So what do you say to that listener that may have that voice in their head? Well, the interesting thing for that is if I go back to three years ago, it was my family Mm -hmm. that I just said, something's not right. I have everything I have in my life is so positive, a loving family, great home, you know, just everything, great career, all these things, but I was still so sad. And I was sharing that with my brother and sister. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And my brother was the one that stood up and said, you need help. Mm. You need to seek help. And it has to be immediate. So he was the one that stayed on me to get help. So, and he called me every day. It was very annoying as a matter of fact, but it was professionally persistent is how I look at that. But it doesn't have to necessarily be a popularity contest and friends, it can be your family. Mm-hmm. And then, so what did you do when he said that? Oh, I got super mad. <laughs> yeah. I think I actually started crying because I think in the back of my head, I knew there was something going on. I didn't know what it was. And it was so frustrating to me because I think when people saw me, they're like, oh, she's got everything put together. I mean, that's Facebook, right? I felt like I was a walking Facebook where people Mm -hmm. would see me and say, wow, she's really got her stuff together. But inside, I didn't have anything together. I shouldn't say anything. I didn't have a lot together. So it was just, it was a good awakening 
for somebody else to say, you need help mm-hmm. and somebody I trust. Somebody you trust and who's persistent about it. And then you got angry. Yes. And then what happened? I think then I got quiet. And then we, that's when he started calling. Like, what's your plan? What's your plan? Have you called anybody yet? So it was just annoying. And so I just decided to start making phone calls. So I knew I had to do something. Part of it, though, not everybody <laughs> knows my history, but my father is was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so I have that story, too, where I uh-huh. didn't want to become him. Like, I, uh-huh. that was not something that I was going to rely on alcohol and drugs to help me feel better. Mm-hmm. So I had to get my crap together, if you will. So is that when you called me? Yes. And that's when we spoke and you were on your driveway. Yeah. It was like <laughs> six o'clock, I think, for me, which would have been, I guess, four for you. But yeah. And I think... I talked to you and then I had talked to a therapist Mm -hmm. and then I think I just made the decision. It was, for me, it was mindset. Mm -hmm. I needed to shift my mindset Mm -hmm. at the time. That's what I believed it to be. I didn't know if it was chemical imbalance or not, but Mm -hmm. for me, it was something I needed to shift in my head. It was the stories I was telling myself that caused me to feel a certain way. So I needed Mm -hmm. to shift those stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And understanding our emotions and stuff. So it's interesting because you and I share a similar story, right? My dad was an alcoholic and I had that same, like, there is no way I'm going to use alcohol or drugs to make me feel better. And so when I was a freshman in college, I didn't even know that there was a, such a thing as depression. And I remember struggling my fresh that fall quarter to get up to go to morning practice, that was like at seven o'clock. It wasn't even like I'd been getting up at four o'clock, right? In high school. And I go in, what's going on? And not wanting to go to school and not wanting to go to class. Like I had this poli-sci class and after the midterm, I didn't go back, right? Like I just, I mean, I didn't go back to class. I had to go back for the final and make, do the paper, but I didn't go back. Like I managed through stress. It was like, okay, let me just hide away and then use all this adrenaline and write a 10 page paper all night. But I didn't realize, I kept going, why am I so sluggish? Why am I so sluggish? And I didn't know. And then that happened again as I was going through graduating because there was that change. And then life went on. And it wasn't till I had my second daughter and my husband took our kids to maybe, like I don't know, a wellness appointment with the two kids. And we, have a, we had a family practice doctor. And she said, Joni said to him, he goes, well, how's Corinne doing? He's like, you know, I don't know. I'm really concerned. She's crying a lot. And like you, on the outside, I looked like I had it all together, really successful. You know, I was just this, I mean, how she really does it is kind of like my brand, right? Like I do the impossible. I do way too much. But on the inside, I was in a lot of pain and my husband saw it because he was one of those trusted people. And back then there was no vulnerability with me, right? I wouldn't share with outside of behind this very strict curtain of my home. And so she called me in. I had an appointment all of a sudden with my doctor and she wanted to put me on antidepressants. And my, I had this huge resistance. I was like, absolutely not. I do not want to solve this problem with drugs. Just because it was more out of fear of becoming like my dad, right? And not really understanding mental health. So I said, I'd go to a therapist and let me just back up. So in college, I got involved with this drugs and society program. And I became an intern. And then from there, I started a peer counseling program for athletes. So I kind of had like a, a built-in 
counseling. Like I would go to the trailer, I go talk to John Porter, you know, I do all my verbal vomiting, but it wasn't like official therapy, but I had my place. I, I found it. And then, so, you know, fast forward all these years later, but so I remember going to a therapist and we did a lot of work. And after like nine months, she goes, Corinne, I think it'd be really helpful. And I'm like, no, I just had so much resistance. And she said, I've taken you as far as I can. I think we need to do this. And it made sense. Like what I know about postpartum depression and, you know, there was a chemical imbalance at that point, right? I was depleted and it was many, many years. And so one of the things that I've now learned about depression is it's half biological, which makes sense with our genetic backgrounds. And then it's half the suppressed emotions, right? So now what I do is I've been able to learn how to regulate it more and I've been able to identify it. I'm like, oh, so now when I have that, and I've had a bit more of that, like I'm spent, right? I'm really honest about that. I'm spent. And I go, oh, I have this like low grade depression. And this is so interesting. We're talking about this today, but I can own that story and not think, oh, it's a weakness or something wrong with me. It's like, oh, I am really low. I've hit right? And what do I need to do to take care of myself so I can show back up? Like, I don't, I don't get afraid that I've now sunk and I'm never going to come out of this. I just know that I'm really, really depleted, right? And that's okay. And now I'm going to really take care of myself to move through this. That's very important. And that to me is, well, like you said, it's a wake up call. So if we're talking about the great awakening, right? That If that's not the biggest awakening right there is to say, what is it that's triggering me to feel this way? Mm-hmm. And really understanding what that is. And for some people, it could be their careers. For some people, it could be something they haven't dealt with from the past. For some people, it could be they're in an abusive situation currently. I mean, there's just so many things that you have to figure out where's this low depletedness, as you called it, Where's it rooted? Where's it coming from? And really unpacking that. But here's where I think us as people, we don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just put it behind us or just shove it down because we got to keep going with life. Mm-hmm. And that's where that facade comes in, where you make it seem like you got all your crap together. Mm-hmm. But wow, if anybody was in your brain seeing how you really <laughs> feel, I always wonder, I'm like, hmm, what would they say? And I've, you know, I've worked really hard at it. And I think for those that have worked at it, they've come to a good spot. It doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Because I still have those times when I start to fall backwards. And like you said, that might be a time where I need to be aware of being depleted. And Mm -hmm. now what do I do? That's my trigger. Okay, now what do I do? How do I take that to the next level? And how do I have this awakening, right? So mm-hmm. then what do I do with it? Well, it's getting clarity. I mean, you know, in last summer, I was just so busy and grinding through and trying to get through COVID that I took, because I have my own support, right? Even though I'm a coach, I have a coach, right? I have people that support me and help where I have an appointment for my own brain, my own processing. And I took myself off that schedule. Because I was like, oh, I'm too busy, or that's okay, I'll deal with it later, or this isn't significant, right? And when I realized, I was like, holy moly, I've got to, that is really important to me. And so, and even with all the support that I have, even with all the tools that I have, here we are sitting here and I'm really depleted, right? And the thing is, is that 
my younger self would have judged me and said, oh, well, then you must not be a very good coach or you must not be good enough or, man, you're really screwed up, Corinne, right? And I'd probably use much harsher language. And now I'm like, oh, I've been through a lot and it's time to take care of myself and that's okay, right? Like, and what do I need? And, and even, you know, as I'm thinking about my packing list before I go on vacation, I'm like, no, I'm not even going to bring my planner. Like, I'm just not. I just, I don't even know, you know, I'll bring a couple of books to read, but I may just sit there and do nothing, right? And for me, who's so into achievement and doing, it's like, what do you mean do nothing? And, and there's this little bit of struggle because part of me is like, oh, I'd have time and I could do this. I'm like, no, that's not allowed, right? Really just sit there. It's kind of like the permission of the Olympics. Like, I don't have to watch all the Olympics. I don't have to know all the stories, right? And I think that because that fights with my, I need to be inclusive, not exclusive value. And I get to just rest. And I think that's really what I need and to slow down and to trust that slowing down will actually put me in a better place to surge forward, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, don't they say you learn the most through discomfort? Yes. Like you gain the most through discomfort. And I think, I mean, that's really what the the epitome of the great awakening is you're going through this catastrophic event. That's the discomfort piece of it. So through that discomfort, hopefully you're having a great awakening. Hopefully that's giving you a chance or a trigger to say, how do I want to give back to the world or to my family or to my career, whatever it is, that's the awakening for you. What does that look like? So I think that that's really important too, is to figure out what that looks like, because everybody's so different. The Great Awakening is going to be different for everybody. Well, and it is. And sometimes even when you make that decision from a place of love and compassion, it's like, it's great, right? You're like, you feel really good. You get that endorphins. You're like, no, this is the right decision. But what people don't realize is when you make that decision and you go into that arena, right? So maybe it's changing jobs, maybe whatever it is that you're doing, you're having to remake that decision every day, right? You can't question it like, oh no, should I do this? Should I not? Which I can really do, but really go back to why did I make that decision? Remind yourself, stay committed to it. And that takes courage, right? And because it's so easy to start to go, well, should I have done this? Should I not have done this? A Monday morning quarterback on our lives. And instead of, okay, I've made this decision and I'm going to stick to it. In on swim team, I'll tell parents never to evaluate swimming on the drop off. Always evaluate on the pickup. Like I ask them, like, why are you why are you having your kids swim? It's usually like we want them either to be proficient in swimming, so they want safety, or they want fitness, right, and health. I'm like, okay, do you like your reasons why they say yes? And I'm like, okay, then you never evaluate on the drop off. Because the drop-off is all the tension of the kids, right? There's the resistance. They don't want to go. They'd rather be at home on their iPads. They don't want to be told what to do. So there's all this resistance. So it's better to evaluate afterwards, right? After it's done, now you can get a better reflection. So as we're, if you're, if you're changing jobs, you want to give yourself enough time so that you can get enough data. So maybe it's three months, six months, a year, right? Sometimes with my clients, I'm like, we don't have enough data yet to make a decision. What was your reason why, right? Did you like your reason why? Let's stay committed to it because we've got to draw out the data to then make a conclusion at some point. Yeah, I, I think the data is an important piece and having somebody externally 
kind of review that with you. And again, somebody from your trusted group, but having another person outside of yourself going through some of that data with you, it could be a friend, it could be a coworker, it could be your boss, whoever it might be. But I think that that's important because we get so tripped up in our own minds that sometimes having that extra thought of somebody else is so helpful. So if it is a therapist or if it is a coach, what does that look like? They should be helping you get from A to B. Mm-hmm. And that's important. One of the things I was going to ask you, I, I've always wanted to ask you this, so I'm going to ask you now. Does anybody drop their kids off or want them to take swim lessons because their kids have the longest arm span that they've ever seen? <laughs> like Michael Phelps. I w- I've been wanting to ask you that and I just, I keep forgetting him. So now when you said that, I'm like, I wonder if anybody drops off for that reason. Like they think they're going to be this Olympic swimmer. The parents are usually smarter than that to say that, right? Because <laughs> they, they're not so overt in saying that. I mean, in this, you see this in youth sports all the time, right? There are parents that take information from the surface and apply it without understanding what it means. And so they're solving the wrong problem, right? You know, like with, with especially with, I always play the long game with anything, but with youth sports, you know, I'm not interested in having the fastest six-year-old or eight-year-old. I'm interested in what are the skill sets that we're developing over time, because that's the mindset that great things can come from. Caleb Dressel was on the Today Show, and they're talking about his medals. And he had this beautiful saying that I'm totally botching, but it was like, it really, it's not about the medals, right? It's about who he became in this process. Like Mm -hmm. he had goals, he had things, but who did he become in this process? And I think so many people miss that because they think the medals and while it's cool and that's the that's the ultimate thing that they strive for, but who do you become in the process of the pursuit? And what happens when you don't get it, who do you become in the process of that? And then we have all these cultural lies because you think, oh, well, if they have a gold medal, they must be a really good person. Not necessarily the case, right? We epitomize, and I don't know if that's the right word, achievement so much that it's like a privilege where you get to be poorly behaved. I mean, we see this all the time in professional sports. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and actually, you can attribute that similarly to professional careers too, right? You're always trying to get to that next level. And so we put these CEOs with all this power and it, it appears that they're above everybody else, mm-hmm. but they're not always great people. Mm-hmm. They're just... a person with a title. Mm -hmm. It's looking at ourselves and saying, well, what is it that I want to become and how do I want to act? Right? So that person that had the gold medal, it was a he, right? Yeah. Caleb Russell. Yes. He took a look back on his life. And I mean, that could have been a great awakening for him to say, well, what is it that I learned from this whole process? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yet I have this medal or that medal or whatever. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on Simone Biles and probably all the things she learned in this last Olympics. I think the list would be pretty long. Well, you know, so it's interesting because we, that we can kind of intertwine this in the Great Awakening, but I do think with her, it was so interesting because somebody had said to me, but Corinne, she took somebody's spot, Right. If she just realized this during the Olympic trials and, and bowed out then, and I said, I don't know if she knew that she 
didn't have to go to the Olympics. Like you and I have guilt about not watching the Olympics. Like, right. Like, let's think about that. Like giving ourselves permission to not have to watch it. And we're not at all connected to the Olympics, right? Like, oh no, we should be doing this. So the patriarchy is long and, you know, strong. I said, she's black. She's a woman. She's a gymnast. Tell me what any of those roles where you think you could opt out. And then I thought about it further and I'm like, she's a gymnast. She's an Olympian, right? She's considered a goat, greatest Olympian of all time. Yeah. Right. Amazing. I don't think USA Gymnastics would allow her to not be there because they needed her. I know how much USA Swimming needed Michael Phelps. Yep. Right. She's a victim of Larry Nassar. So she's been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're talking about a woman who has not had a voice most of her life. Mm -hmm. Right. I believe she trained in Bella Caroli's gym. Right. Again. And NBC wants her there. Right. Like, so there were so many people like we, when we think about the pressures and, and I hope people can take this and say, okay, what are the invisible prison walls in your life where you think you don't have a choice? Right. And I think that's what this great awakening is doing is going, wait a second, is this really true? You know, like I remember when I was at my job and so I had this tenure job, you know, I'd wanted to be a head coach. I was a head coach of three sports. I taught health. I had this online course, you know, I taught physical education. I was tenured. I was safe. Right. And I thought, oh, well, I have the golden handcuffs. I'm stuck here forever. Right. Right. I have no choices. I just, I got lucky and fell into this job that everybody else wants except for me. Right. And there was a lot of privilege in that and thinking I had no choice. And it was in this parking lot in San Francisco I drove to. I was actually going to this Oprah Winfrey conference. It was like some own thing or O conference, OU conference. And I drove in with my girlfriend and there was all this turbulence happening at work. And I pulled into the parking space and I looked at her and I go, I could just quit my job. And she looked at me and I'm like, I could quit. And nobody quits these jobs. Like they are truly the golden handcuffs, right? I think I had one of 37 jobs in the state of California. And I knew once I left, I was burning the boats. But all of a sudden, I broke free of that prison wall, right? Before, for years, I just said, I'm stuck. I'm here. What else can I do? This is all that I know, right? And so like, if that's what I thought in my position where the world doesn't know me, I can only imagine what Simone Biles thought of what she was allowed to do and not allowed to do. So I think it took tremendous courage for her. So that can be a great example, I guess, of the great awakening, right? Oh, I love that that example. I love it. I, I I mean, I'm almost speechless because I think that's so, I said almost speechless, Corinne, you know that that's a rarity for me, but it, it really depicts where she's sitting and where so many of us are sitting and we don't even realize it. And like you said, we're not to the extreme maybe of Simone Biles. If we're just Laura Boyd, we're on the total opposite side. Okay. Hold on. Time out. You can't say just Laura Boyd. You're Laura, Laura Boyd, right? Like you and I don't, people don't know who we are outside of our worlds. You know, she's, she's known internationally worldwide, right? right? But let's get rid of the just, let's not diminish ourselves and make ourselves small. You're Laura Boyd. You have your people. It's a smaller audience. Yes, I have, I have my people, but yeah. So I'm Laura Boyd over here. Simone Biles. Yes. She's obviously more well-known, but I'm just, you have the same, mm-hmm. the same issues. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say people take a look at yourself and figure out what some of those 
triggers might be and help yourself. Figure out how to help yourself or what you need to help yourself and who's going to be part of that helping. Well, and I think the other thing that came up for me as you said that is you don't have to know the whole path, yeah. right? Like I, that's why I love that Martin Luther King quote that used to be on my bulletin board. It's like, all you need to know is the first step, take the first step. And, you know, I love how you shared that it was your family, right? It was your brother who was really in your corner. Sometimes you may feel alone. And what I've found over my life is it's like John Porter, holy moly. You know, my sophomore year in college, walking into this drugs and society class thinking, oh, just a class and a pivotal mentor who, I mean, I just talked to him recently and I was on the phone with him in tears, right? So I'm 49 now. I mean, he, that he was younger than that when I first met him and we're laughing about that. But there is that truth to that saying of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. He was pivotal in my undergraduate career. And there was another professor who was a lifelong mentor who I'm still mad at today because he died a few years ago. I was like, you're not allowed to die. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes, he is. No. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back to what you first talked about, the hospice doctor. (laughs) He has a time frame. Death and taxes, right? Isn't that what they say? Yes. But so the people do show up if you just, it's like decluttering my whole house. I have to all done. Well, maybe you just do a drawer, right? Maybe your great awakening is one, it's like the drawer in your life and you do that and then it'll figure out the next thing. I mean, I talk about this with clients with jobs of, you know, I have a client who wanted to go do something and it's totally different than what she worked in the past. And I'm like, well, you go try that out. And maybe it's not even, that's not the job that you wind up doing you wind up meeting somebody there because I've seen this happen. Maybe you have too, where then you meet somebody there that opens up another door, another connection, right? And it doesn't make sense moving forward. But when you look back, you can totally make sense. I mean, that's like when I think of my own career and where I am now, none of it made sense once I, you know, when I built this show or any of the stuff I did, but looking back, it's like, oh yes. So I didn't understand it. So I just think with the great awakening, don't think you have to have your blueprint plan and it has to be all drafted and have to all execute. It has to be done perfectly because that's the illusion of perfection. Trust that you're going to have this great awakening. And like, as you said, you've had a few great awakenings. Yeah. And I was going to come back to that because I do think that's an important piece to remember is that we say we're having this great awakening. Sometimes we put such a big word to it. And then we do think that we have to have all of the answers, everything figured out. But that's kind of the fun of it too, is to try to figure things out. What does it look like? How can it be shaped and molded and look different than when you first started? I mean, I just think of this example, when you start a business you think it's going to be like this, this particular vision, and all of a sudden you start working and you're like, "Mm, no, it needs to look like this, which is maybe a 180 degree turn. So I think being open to that, being aware of it and shifting and, you know, we've all done it in the last 18 months, we've all pivoted to some capacity. And so we can do that. That's the cool part about humans is we we have the opportunity to do it, but it's taking that risk or taking that difference or being in discomfort because I think people don't like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being comfortable with the uncomfortable is really important. And I'm going to go back to, because this is my, I have a really low risk tolerance 
which is interesting because I'm an entrepreneur, but is really manage your risk. Know what your risk is. So I know I have a low risk tolerance. So what are the things that I need to have in place so that I can do these riskier things like be an entrepreneur? You know, I, I, I totally believe in committing to the best case scenario and then manage risk and keep moving forward. And if you need to pivot or shift, because that happens, right? Sometimes you're not going to, you think you want X and then you get there and you're like, either I don't really want it. I mean, we see this happen in corporate jobs where somebody's like, I want to be in the C-suites. I want to be in the C-suites. They get there and they're like, huh, I don't like this shit. Right. And they don't want it, but then they're like, but it's the status of it, you know, like I finally arrived and they're like, but it's not what I want. Well, then what do you want to do? This is our one precious life that Mary Oliver says, right? So what do we want to do with it? We get to have that sort of agency, just like you and I get to have that agency with the Olympics. Do we watch it? Do we not? Right. And a lot of it is permission. Mm-hmm. I think we have a hard time giving ourselves permission to do something that doesn't belong in the duty paradigm, mm-hmm. right? That status quo piece. Mm-hmm. We all kind of just chug along with the status quo or the achievement. You know, if you're sitting in the C-suite because of that achievement, that title, and you haven't really taken a step back to say, why am I here? Mm -hmm. Even though I hate getting up every morning to go there, Mm -hmm. why am I here? Mm -hmm. And if you have a voice that says, because you have to, this is the only way, this is all that your training is, I'd really question that, right? What else could you do? What may you not be seeing? And that's why, you know, working with somebody else because they can see beyond your blind spots. We get, you know, again, we have those prison walls that we can't see and to have somebody that can question it, who's on your team, who can help you manage risk, who's also sometimes where spouses can become a problem is they're emotionally invested or they have their own fears that get entangled with your fears and, or they don't want you to be vulnerable or they don't want you to fail And so they may be roadblocks, even though they're your biggest champions, right? And so that's why outside support can be helpful. For sure. I actually, there's a funny story. When my husband and I first got married, we were in our marriage, pre-marriage class or whatever it was. And we had a break for lunch and they said, okay, go take your break. And we had to get a new couch. So I think we're 24 or something like that. We go to the furniture store and we realized something that day because I went in and I saw this couch. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that couch. That is a beautiful couch. Well, my husband was like, salesperson, wrap it up. We're going to get this couch. Well, meanwhile, he didn't realize I was looking at five other couches. And so when I got back and he had already like wrapped it up, we're paying for it, we're moving forward because that's how he does things, right? (laughs) And I'm like, let's look at all the options and be resourceful (laughs) and just make sure that's the right couch. That's just not how he makes decisions. And I think it's interesting because from that day, we still laugh about that because we got in a huge fight about it. And then we had to go back to this marriage class. And I'm sure still today that people are like, oh, yeah, they're not going to make it. Because we had to figure out this is we're we're both different. We do things differently, but I still know the intent behind where he's at and where he's coming from and have that respect. So I think that that I it just made me think of that when you ask your spouse. But so people may think that you're not gonna make it, but while you argued about it, there was a lot of authenticity because you both used your own voice, you realized your differences and you went back to the counseling, right? To the class to work on the issues versus hiding away and letting the resentment build. And there was laughter, 
Right. So that's dealing well, with the discomfort. For sure. And the thing is, just to end the story on a comical note, they invited us up. They had no idea what we had just done over lunch, but they invited us up to share a communicate miscommunication example. <laughs> <laughs> and I started sobbing during this because I felt so terrible. So anyway, yes, that's... So remember uh, when I said earlier, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I mean, here you go. This is what does happen, right? Not that we want to count on the magical moments, but there we have to have a bit of trust and faith of keep moving forward and the right people will show up, the right experiences, as long as you are in line with your integrity and you're willing to do the work, right? Like I have dreamed my own dreams of being rescued by the white knight until they come. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to do this myself. <laughs> I am the white knight. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that goes back to what we've talked about in earlier podcasts too, is I really believe that you, you have the awareness first or awakening, how, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about the great awakening, but you have the awareness first, then it goes back to what's your desire to change. Mm-hmm. what is your desire to change? And once you figure that out, then what's your commitment to it? And then it's about practice, right? And mm-hmm. like like you always say, compassion is the biggest motivator for change. <laughs> says, says the woman who believes that stress hey, is her big motivator. It's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> We're not coaching me right now. But anywho, so those are things. And I, I talk about that a lot because <laughs> I – you know, we have these small failures every day and we got to learn from them. So that's the practice and the compassion side of it. <laughs> I'm working on that on my, for myself. But, but that, this is what's really important is that we all have areas to clean up and work on, right? We can't clean it all up. We're not going to be just this one. It's kind of like that illusion that you're talking about before. It was like on the outside, you look like that, you know, social media, like walking image of having it all together. And I think when we when we put that kind of pressure on ourselves versus realizing like we're humans and we are messy and we are incomplete. And that's the beauty as we go through this life. Cause I do think once we have it all wrapped up, we're kind of done here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Going back to your hospice doctor, then it's yes. death. No, then it's death. <laughs> but then it's like, what's the next thing? Cause mm-hmm. as humans, we're looking for mm-hmm. what's the next thing. Yeah. Cause we all have these different gifts that we've been given. So how can we use that? for other people. I feel like we're put on this earth to help others. That's my own personal belief, but I, and what that looks like is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I definitely are put on this earth to help others. You and I definitely, I don't think everybody has that same belief, but that's okay. (laughs) No, I think they should. No, but I mean, I'm not saying like you, how you and I in particular help others. I'm just saying help others by, you know, maybe doing their taxes or something. I don't know. I'm making something up, but it's different for everybody. But I do think it's about how do you service other people? I just want to and say it's not an endpoint because you'll continuously go through this. It's like spiral learning, right? Like you'll have an awakening and then you'll carry on. And then there'll be some other catalytic thing that happens in your life that will create another opportunity for a great awakening. And I love how you said, Laura, sometimes like we put that name on there and it seems sounds really big, right? And that can feel overwhelming, but it could be a change, right? Yeah. And I think the great part of it makes it seem big. Mm-hmm. But what if you said, this is my great awakening number 10, or this is my <laughs> great awakening 18? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what if we did that? 
it, it makes it feel like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I got this because I know that there's going to be a 19 mm-hmm. and there's going to be a 20. Mm-hmm. That's life. But what it, is it? And I think part of the great is also that it's a much more collective experience, right? The Great Depression. It was a collective experience around the world. And we're seeing this awakening and the, you know, the great resignation. It's around the world. It's part of this collective experience because everybody is being affected by this global pandemic in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's where I think the great happens. Not that it has to be this great moment in your life or now you're going to do great things in your life right? It may be downshifting some stuff in your life, which actually can be really great. And it's really vulnerable, right? Like I have some clients, I'm like, this week I go, you realize you've arrived. This is what you've wanted for the last nine years that we've been working together and you've achieved it. And it was like, oh shit. (laughs) Right. They're like, now what? Yeah. Now they have great awakening number 19. (laughs) Yes. All right, Laura. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. We'll be back, you guys. Yes. Thank you, Corinne. All right. That was so much fun to talk with Laura today. I want to circle back with the key points of our conversation. One, give yourself permission. You don't have to have it all planned out. It's like, oh, it's a great awakening. It's a great awakening because we're in this collective experience. Lots of people are having these awakenings. As you talk with people, they're getting more clarity. They're realizing, what am I done with? What do I no longer want to do? What do I want to do? Who are the people in my life? My only invitation for you on that is when you make those decisions, check what's underneath it. Are you making the decision from a place of love and compassion or fear and shame? If you're making the decision from fear, shame, is it a reactive decision? that then could sabotage you. And when my invitation is to switch over to love and compassion and then make the decisions. And remember, there is going to be discomfort and change. That's why we don't like change and we don't like to feel uncomfortable. But what I've talked about here for over 10 years is being comfortable with the uncomfortable. So we're going to go through awakenings throughout our lives and Sometimes they're little awakenings where we pivot and we tilt just a bit. And sometimes they're big ones. Maybe they're changing jobs, moving locations. There's a lot of change happening right now, right? Some in small steps, some in big steps. And sometimes what we don't see is when people make the big step, what were all the little steps that it took to get there? And for those of you that may say, oh, Corinne and Laura, that's great for you too. You have your people look around because you may not realize who you don't have. And remember, Laura called me one day, right? She reached out to me and we were talking about how I remember talking with her in the driveway and we moved forward from there. There are people out in the world. For me in college, it was John Porter when I walked into his drugs and society class and that started that. And then I walked into another class, my personal finance class, and it was Babe Butler and who's been a guest on the show many, many years ago, but there were people. And so trust that. And remember, you're also on your team. All right, you all, I'm smiling big for you. Hey, 
If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Corinne, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short, they're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude. And that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night, because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.